Welcome to another Practical Neurology Editor's Choice podcast. My name is Amy Ross Russell. I'm a registrar trainee in Southampton, and it's a real treat to be recording the August 2023 podcast with a returning group, the Peripheral Nerve and Neuromuscular Dream Team, that is Ashlyn Carr and Professor Mike Lunn, both consultants at the National Hospital for Neurology and Neurosurgery who have interests and expertise in a wide range of neuropathies, but particularly inflammatory neuropathies, which we're focusing on today. They're joined by Michael Foster, a clinical research fellow at the UCL, Queen Square Institute of Neurology and Neurosurgery, and a specialist registrar at Queen Square. And they've put together an absolute gem of a paper that I think will be a go-to document for many, I suspect most of our listeners uh, and readers. So welcome to you all, and thank you very much for joining us a quick reminder to those who may not have had the chance yet to listen into the Editor's Highlight Pod for August and also our new podcast with Professor Martin Turner, Ruth Wood and Zinyu Tai, who are two neurology trainees. That's focusing on breaking down some of the, the really great cases that have been submitted to the journal and um, which are published in the current edition. It's a, it's a really fantastic listen and, and I hope a really inspiring podcast for all levels of neurologists. Today we're discussing first-line immunosuppression in neurology and the process by which you do that safely and effectively for your patients. We're going to focus on neuromuscular diseases, but of course it's relevant to many neurological diseases and the same process is is suitable in lots of scenarios. So it's a a really useful and really relevant topic for clinical practice. And and I think that's exemplified really in that line in your paper that says this is a, a safe, sensible and responsive approach that's based on the best available evidence and consensus expert opinion. That's exactly what practical neurology is about and it's exactly how we should be practicing wherever possible. So thank you for, for bringing this paper. Michael, I wondered if we could start with you just explaining what the treatments are that we're talking about and what they do. So the difference between immunosuppressive and immunomodulatory treatments, the drugs that we're talking about and and broadly how they're working. Sure. Yeah, I think that is a good place to start. And the drugs we use can be divided into, into these two broad camps, although there isn't really a consensus about all the allocations. Immunosuppressive drugs tend to have broad effects through activity or intracellular pathways. There are, for starters, your anti-proliferative agents, such as azathioprine, mycophenolate and cyclophosphamide, which limit T-cell and B-cell development and activity. You've then also got corticosteroids, which exert their effect through the inhibition of gene transcription for secretion of inflammatory cytokines. Generally, as the mechanism of action of these drugs is less targeted, their efficacy comes with a higher rate of side effects and a broader risk profile. The second grouping is immunomodulatory agents, which have specific extracellular effects on particular cell types or pathways. Rituximab is an excellent example, targeting CD20-positive B cells in order to reduce production of pathogenic antibodies. Methotrexate also, even though it is often considered a steroid-sparing agent in the same way as azathioprine and mycophenolate, is classed as immunomodulatory due to its specific action of folic acid antagonism. In contrast to immunosuppressive medications, immunomodulatory drugs are described as having a more favourable risk-benefit profile. That's not to say, however, that these are always first choice. Some clinical situations need the rapidity of onset of corticosteroids or the strong immunosuppressive effect of cyclophosphamide. Great, thanks. And broadly, how good is their evidence for use in neuromuscular disease? Well, Patchy is perhaps putting it uh, a little bit meanly, but it is not consistent throughout. While there are some randomised controlled trials supporting the use of these medications in specific conditions, a lot of current practice is also based on case series and historical experience. 
In inflammatory myopathies, for instance, control trials have shown the benefit of intravenous immunoglobulin and rituximab. A small study also showed a modest benefit of azathioprine. However, corticosteroid use in myopathies, although it is widespread, is actually only based on historical clinical practice. On the other hand, in CIDP, in chronic inflammatory demyelinating polyneuropathy, the benefit of corticosteroids has been demonstrated in randomized control trials, as has that of plasma exchange and intravenous immunoglobulin. Similarly, immunoglobulin's efficacy in multifocal motor neuropathy has been demonstrated in control trials, but a case series has suggested that corticosteroids are at best ineffective, if not harmful, and a case report described worsening with plasma exchange. Myasthenia gravis has the greatest wealth of randomized controlled trials examining treatment options. Corticosteroid benefit was first demonstrated in large case series and has since been supported by a few controlled trials. Azathioprine's efficacy is similarly demonstrated. One randomized trial compared azathioprine with prednisolone to prednisolone alone, finding that patients in the azathioprine group were able to maintain remission with lower doses of prednisolone and experienced fewer corticosteroid-related side effects. Mycophenolate's use has been driven by multiple positive retrospective case series, although two randomized trials have actually failed to show any benefit. And furthermore, a small control trial was positive for use of methotrexate. There is, however, a definite lack of head-to-head studies of different immunosuppressive or immunomodulatory agents. That's what can make it so difficult to navigate treatment for these conditions. Uh, Clinicians have to gather evidence from really quite diverse sources and balance them individually for each patient. Thank you. And... Ashling, why do you think this guidance is important? Why do you think we need it written down in a in a, a single document for reference? Well, this was a challenge set to me when I just started in my consultant job. And I was asked to put together an immunosuppression usage guideline for the department. So basically it was writing down some sort of a structured way, what we all do as doctors anyway. So I hope nobody feels that reading through this, it's like teaching your granny to suck eggs. But for me, it was about making sure that every single patient, no matter how under pressure I might be in clinic, or how busy the ward round was on that day had a systematic and thorough and fully safe approach to the consideration and prescription um, of all of these immunosuppressive agents because of their risk profile. So the way we structured it was writing down exactly what we do and how we think through a patient. So if you look in our paper at figure one, it's the the, the basic thought process of diagnosis and prescription. Eligibility is the first thing. What diagnosis do we have in front of us? And how sick is the patient that we are looking at? How hard do we need to go with immunosuppression? How aggressive do we need to treat? Or do we have time in this clinical context to um, consider alternative treatments properly, you know, for example, vaccinate if needs be? Then the informed consent. Patients should be very much a part of this decision-making pathway. They need to understand their condition. They need to understand where this condition will go if we do not treat. And they need to have a full understanding of all their treatment options and what we expect as doctors might occur if they decide not to go with the options we suggest for them. The informed consent procedure has to consider all of the potential complications relevant to that patient. And then treatment induction. 
Um, it's about how we prescribe, how we ensure that we are recording that the patient is improving. Often cases that will be an individualised decision. Are there appropriate clinical outcome measurements that we can use and tools we can put in place to, to record this? Or are we trying to prevent progression, prevent worsening? And how are we going to set up a clear monitoring system to ensure that if there are any potential complications uh, associated with the drugs that we are using, we will capture those and act on them appropriately? Ongoing monitoring for long term failure to respond to the drugs or um, to consider when is an appropriate time to discontinue the drugs is also something that you need to plan for at the very beginning. And also it's an agreement with the patient and and a pre-prescription decision as to what would constitute the right time to discontinue the drug is is something that we should all consider. So although we have this in a sort of an an algorithm, um, a flowchart in um, figure one, all of these decisions are really, you know, on the table in front of you when you're making this decision to start or not to start immunosuppression agents in an individual and which one to choose. Thank you. That that's brilliant, and it it really is a helpful way, as you say, to just think through doing it with a with a structure every single time. I wonder if we could dive into each of those sections just a little bit more and maybe try and pull out some of the the really great practical advice from your paper. Mike, when we're thinking about eligibility, how much does it matter that we have a a watertight diagnosis before we start treatment? Uh, A watertight diagnosis is what we all aim for in every clinical case that we approach. Um, We are supposed to make perfect decisions with perfect information but usually we're expected to make perfect decisions with imperfect information and it's not always possible to get to that completely watertight diagnosis. The right diagnosis uh, is not quite the same as a watertight diagnosis. Uh, Where we can we try and get tissue and particularly that's the case where we're likely to use the immunosuppressants such as cyclophosphamide or rituximab, things with perhaps slightly higher risk and they're generally used uh, perhaps as first line in cases of vasculitis or the inflammatory myopathies where tissue might be available, although even when one attempts to find that tissue, one doesn't always get a positive answer. Uh, and then one has to work on secondary information such as antibodies in a vasculitis to uh, confirm that diagnosis. And some of those antibodies are stronger evidence than others. Um, for instance, in uh, vaginus granulomatosis, a C anchor uh, would be pretty uh, convincing evidence, particularly if confirmed with an ELISA, that uh, you had got the correct diagnosis, uh, even if you didn't uh, have tissue. Whereas in diseases such as CIDP, multifocal motor neuropathy or GBS, these are clinical diagnoses with laboratory support, and there isn't necessary the tissue diagnosis to move move forward with an absolutely watertight diagnosis there, but the watertight diagnosis really comes from uh, the, the clinical uh, case history and examination and the supportive uh, laboratory features. I think the reason for getting that watertight diagnosis uh, at the beginning, uh, firstly, you have to bring your patient with you. The patient would like to be convinced uh, that uh, they're being treated for the right thing. Uh, you would like to be convinced that you're treating the patient for the right thing 
And perhaps more importantly is that at a later stage when the first line treatment hasn't worked or there's a relapse after some treatment, it's very difficult to go back uh, at a later stage to find the tissue once you've given the patient uh, a lot of steroids or cyclophosphamide and then get a positive tissue diagnosis later. It's much easier to reconsider um, the diagnosis in the light of your tissue diagnosis at the beginning and say, okay, well, uh, the, the, the situation here has changed, maybe there's a secondary diagnosis, etc., than say, oh, well, we've got a relapse. Was that the diagnosis at the beginning? So we do like to try and confirm it as much as possible right at the beginning uh, in order to make it as watertight as possible, but it uh, is not always uh, completely histologically proven. Yeah. And you're, um, you've got some fantastic tables in there showing uh, first, second and third line uh, responses to different immunosuppressive treatments. Why do you think there's such variety in the responses to different treatment options between IVIG or plasma exchange or steroids? Do you think that's about the, the sort of pathophysiology of the diseases themselves? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and many of these diseases, we still don't understand the pathophysiology completely. We have uh, very strong indications of uh, the pathophysiology of some of these diseases. So myasthenia gravis uh, and Guillain-Barre syndrome, we really know that these are humanly mediated diseases that the pathogenesis is worked out from uh, induction of the disease in GBS, but certainly through uh, the mechanisms of disease uh, through antibodies in both of those conditions. And as a result, those treatments that suppress the immune system on the humoral side uh, possibly uh, work in preference to uh, drugs that perhaps suppress the T-cell side of things a little harder. The other decisions are often made on the basis of uh, small randomised controlled trials or, or expertise, as uh, Michael alluded to earlier on. Um, so in CIDP, for instance, in some cases, there's a, a clear humoral pathogenesis, but most of CIDP is probably driven through T-cell mechanisms um, with complement, etc. And so CIDP responds to a, a broader range of immunosuppressants. Multifocal motor neuropathy, as an interesting case in point, only responds to IVIG. And where there are trials of treatment for multifocal motor neuropathy, for other agents other than IVIG, they've generally been negative. And we know from our clinical practice that steroids frequently make multifocal motor neuropathy worse. Uh, and so in some cases does plasma exchange. Uh, and that tells us something about the pathogenesis of multifocal motor neuropathy that really we don't understand at all. Yeah, that's really interesting. There's so much more to, to find out. Ashling, you mentioned informed consent and you very kindly provide in the supplemental material your own information booklets for, for the conditions that we're focused on. But as you say, it's it's not really enough for, for now for informed consent. Michael, why isn't providing an information sheet sufficient for these conditions? Why do you think that we have to be more individualised? I think it's a really important point here. Um, practice in this area used to be guided by the, the Bolin criteria, where the standard of consent was what a reasonable body of medical opinion would accept. Clinicians were required to inform patients of all frequently occurring adverse events and all potential serious adverse events, regardless of their rarity. The process of informed consent was therefore really quite uniform with, as you've mentioned there, widespread use of standardised patient information leaflets. However, since the Montgomery judgment in 2015, 
the required standard for informed consent has changed and clinicians are now required to provide information about all material risks. That would be a risk that a reasonable person in the patient's position is likely to attach significance to, or if the doctor is or should reasonably be aware that their patient would be likely to attach significance to it. So it's a bit of a a mouthful, but really what it means is the test has shifted from what a body of medical opinion would accept to that which a reasonable lay person would expect. So understanding of what is relevant will only be found by having personalised consent discussions with each patient. So pregnancy and fertility will be more important to some patients than others, for example, and patients are likely to want different levels of details about possible risks and adverse reactions. This doesn't mean that patient information leaflets are no longer useful, just that the process of securing informed consent must be based on an open and meaningful conversation, which should include discussion of alternative options, as well as the risks of both immunosuppression in general and the drug in particular. Shared decision-making based on a trusting patient-doctor relationship is is key here, just as it is throughout the the journey of treatment. Yeah, exactly. And it sort of underpins many of our, our good medical good medical practice uh, guidelines, doesn't it? But but thank you. That's really, really clear. Ashling, you've you've talked about several important considerations before starting treatments. And there's a, a very clear summary of recommended pre-treatment screening, which, as you say, is mainly informed by the literature around the use of these drugs in rheumatological conditions. There's um, also a fantastic table, just referencing for listeners, uh, of actionable events from this screening process. So so take a look at that. I'll keep that for reference. I'm going to skip over sort of specific infections, tuberculosis and and pneumocystis, because there are very clear algorithms that you've given for managing the risk of those. You were keen to mention a change to the guidelines on varicella vaccination, which has occurred since this paper was published. I wonder if you could just talk us through that. Yes, um, thanks for giving us the opportunity to to highlight this. And I think this highlights a a very significant point um, about following guidelines in general. All of these indications are potentially updated in real time um, very frequently. I try to take responsibility within my department for keeping our guidelines as um, correct as possible. And I interact with our virologists, microbiologists, rheumatologists um, for advice on bone health uh, frequently so that I have appropriate multi-specialty input. But when someone is taking the guidance from our paper, I hope that they will also acknowledge that we all need to take uh, personal responsibilities for making sure that the advice we're given to patients is up to date in real time. One example is the fact that there's a new green book just released this week on um, shingles vaccination, shingles prophylaxis, and that is um, going to change the situation from September 2023 to change the availability from the live um, Zostavax virus, which will no longer be available, and change to a non-live subunit vaccine called Shingrix. Now, Shingrix has been available since 2021, but in a very limited way as a shingles vaccine to patients between the ages of 70 and 79. And it's denied to be expanded to those um, above the age of 50 and also those who are significantly immunosuppressed. There's a very clear definition of what severe immunosuppression is, but um, of note for our listeners, 
pretty much all of the steroid doses that we use in um, the treatment of um, immune-mediated neuromuscular diseases would qualify somebody to be in that severe immunosuppressed cohort. So have a look at the, the new green book and make yourself aware of it. What is helpful to know is that what we used to advise was that patients on significant immunosuppression should not have an um, exposure to an activated um, vaccine. Well, from September 2023, the activated varicella vaccines will no longer be broadly available and there will be a shift to the non-activated Shingrix. But it's just to be aware of these changes and how all of these indications evolve with availability of new medications and evolve with um, our knowledge and in, um, that's why we like to borrow some of our evidence from the haematologists and the rheumatologists who have vast experience in using all of these drugs. And um, we just try to adapt them to our patients and to the, the conditions that we are trying to treat here. Yeah, thank you. It's a really important point. I wanted to, to dwell as well for a few minutes. You've both mentioned bone health and, and fertility and, and sort of young female patients. It's really important and, and really easy to forget to ask sort of some of those questions. When should we be thinking about bone health and, and why is it a particular problem in this cohort of patients? So I think bone health gives us a particular example that um, we need to consider slightly differently in the neuromuscular cohort. And that's for two reasons. Firstly, the doses and the duration of steroids that we tend to prescribe usually qualify us for significant bone health risk, while often in, in rheumatology, for example, or in steroid usage in, in, in um in respiratory diseases, you get away with a shorter, lower risk dose of steroids. So as soon as we're thinking about steroid use, it already puts us in the, the bone health risk category automatically. Um, and secondly, there is the associated immobility that comes with having a neuromuscular uh, disorder. So that will obviously increase your, your potential for um, for bone health complications. There are very nice um, algorithms and lovely online tools, for example, the FRAX tool that have been established on a huge population um, basis for us to work out what an individual's likelihood of um, a fracture over the next 10 years is. And if that likelihood is above 1%, then we should be instituting bone protection medication at that stage. The FRAX tool is highly available and you just Google it and you'll find it and it's very easy to apply at the bedside or via your phone when you're chatting to the patient in clinic. We do, however, also ask alongside the FRAX tool whether a patient ha um, could potentially have um, any history of a vertebral fracture. It's just an extra level of um, screening that uh, is helpful in our slightly higher risk group because the FRAX tool is a, supposed to be a general population-based tool and it really is only validated for people within between the ages of 40 and 80. And so you need to um, use your individualised approach, as we've mentioned many times before. The FRAX tool is a very clear guidance and it, it, it leads you along whether or um, not to start allandronic acid as fir first line or residronate if there is um, any suggestion of renal impairment. Um, 
However, we do not always have to do a DEXA scan. A DEXA scan is helpful if a patient is sitting at the borderline of the indication, so in around 1% or in and around 10% um, fracture risk. If they're extremely high risk uh, and that comes out as a FRAC score of over 10%, they should be referred directly to a rheumatologist who will have access to um, the second line therapies. But if you ever have any concern or you're feeling a little bit unsure, uh, a quick chat to your local rheumatologist, as is always the case here, speak to your friendly um, associated specialists for particular advice. Yeah, have friends. It's a good, it's a good yes, role in medicine. Exactly. Um, and, and before we move on, what about young female patients? What do we need to ask about? What do we need to think about? So in young female patients, it's um, if they meet the criteria to be commencing bone health based on the dosage of their steroids, well, then they, they obviously should um, be commenced. How it becomes more relevant whenever we're thinking about um, just how long that they need exposure to residrinate or alandronic acid because in the over 75s the risk benefit ratio shifts a little and the normal recommendation is to take a holiday from these drugs after three or five years changes so over 75s it's probably fine to continue um, for at least 10 years in those under 75 so obviously that would appear uh, be appropriate for young females after five years oral or three years parenteral therapy treatment should be reviewed However, if there is a history of a hip or a vertebral fracture or anyone who is on long-term glucocorticoids, then there are exceptions to these rules. So whenever there are those situations, so a young female who um, has a long-standing relapsing remitting disease that may expose them to multiple doses of steroids over time, then it's often very sensible to get the advice of a rheumatologist to guide us exactly what the best way to to approach long-term bone health maintenance is. Mike, more broadly, when you're thinking about women who may be sort of considering children or about to approach pregnancy, how do you approach that in the clinic and sort of have those discussions around long-term immunosuppression or, or potentially teratogenic uh, medications? Uh, that's always a very difficult uh, discussion uh, just because of the uh, implications and some of the many unknowns. Um, it has to be approached very sensitively, of course, um, partly because the patient sitting in front of you has a neurological condition that they'd rather not have. They're anxious and worried about their disease to start with and really don't know what their future holds uh, for their disease. So one has to be uh, careful and considerate uh, and provide the various options, sometimes in more than one session, uh, as to how to approach things. The information that is available for uh, pregnancy and teratogenicity, rather like the vaccine guidance, does change from time to time and it's quite important to try and keep up with it um, uh, and um, but there, there are some basic um, background uh, principles that perhaps govern using these drugs uh, in women who are of childbearing age uh, who might be considering fertility in the future. In general one would consider none of the immunosuppressant drugs safe in pregnancy except for azathioprine where 
um, that drug uh, would be the drug of choice uh, if you definitely needed to have immunosuppression on board whilst somebody was pregnant and the rheumatologists would often use azathioprine for instance as their drug of choice uh, in treating young women with uh, lupus uh, and so that's uh, acceptable. Uh, the teratogenic risks of methotrexate and um, mycophenolate mofetil are, are well known uh, and cyclophosphamide also so they would definitely be avoided uh, in the preconception period and certainly during pregnancy. Um, there are a few uh, additional considerations that we're always concerned about that do change that are perhaps less evidence supported uh, and these are highlighted in the paper but um, there is some suggestion that mycophenolate um, uh, may be gametotoxic in males uh, and that uh, advice comes and goes at various times uh, and so uh, in general we advise men uh, who are on mycophenolate not to conceive and to take extra precautions uh, with no mycophenolate uh, within a month of uh, trying to conceive if possible. Although those data supporting mycophenolate gametotoxicity are, are a little bit controversial. Uh, and then of course there's the uh, issue of fertility overall uh, and that particularly applies um, to cyclophosphamide uh, and it's a uh, discussion that we have with men and women uh, about the use of cyclophosphamide. Uh, in women under the age of 25, uh, immunosuppressant doses of cyclophosphamide probably do not affect fertility significantly, but over the age of 25, uh, the effect of cyclophosphamide rapidly decreases people's fertility, uh, and therefore consideration should be given for that with either um, uh, egg or ovarian harvesting and advice taken from the uh, gynaecologists and obstetricians and the fertility team as to how to uh, preserve fertility for um, future pregnancies. Uh, and in men, of course, it's much easier to uh, uh, donate sperm uh, and therefore bank some sperm for the future if required in case fertility is significantly affected. Um, so th th all of those considerations need to be taken into account in your choice. Um, they're all extremely important, um, but again, uh, it's a matter of uh, a pragmatic decision with the patient in front of you with the severity of their disease and their needs uh, and their likely choices in the future, uh, not all of which are immediately predictable. Yes, yes, and again emphasises the importance of individualised care. Moving on to assessing and monitoring clinical efficacy, now, of course, there's, there's two elements to that, isn't it? There's, there's monitoring the drug is effective and there's monitoring that the drug is safe, as we discussed at the beginning. Mike, how should we approach disease monitoring? You use a term that the MCID or, or minimal clinical indicator of change. Could you explain what you mean by that and how you use it and how you approach monitoring the impact of the medication on, on individuals' disease? Yeah, I mean, it's another good, really good question. And again, goes back to the individual in front of you, uh, their expectations and your expectations, and uh, when you expect change to occur. So for instance, uh, in uh, CIDP, uh, this is a demyelinating disease, um, uh, you would expect to be able to uh, certainly turn off the stimulus to demyelination if you can't reverse the electrical conduction block and therefore you might expect uh, rapid uh, recovery within 
weeks and sometimes recovery back to normal. Uh, whereas in uh, a disease that involves uh, quite profound damage to nerves such as vasculitis, um, where that damage might be very proximal, what you might be expecting to start with is no disease activity, turning off the disease and then allowing recovery of nerves, which of course takes many months or many years. And so therefore, starting off with the knowledge of the disease, where the pathology is and what it is and what you expect your outcome to be uh, at the beginning and explaining that to the patient is an important starting point. Then you really want to know what your uh, change is. So again, in CIDP, you expect some change. And quite often we see patients treated with uh, long-term intravenous immunoglobulin uh, who have felt a little bit better. Uh, they've got a little bit more energy, a bit less fatigue, but actually have not made any difference at all to their functional outcomes. Uh, and I would not regard that as uh, a, a significant change that has meaning to the patient in the context of their disease. And if you then want to measure that, the MCID, the minimal clinically important difference, might be a threshold that you would like to see the patient pass. Uh, those thresholds are really designed for research trial use, but they're good rules of thumb. Uh, and for instance, we would certainly like to see the patient improving in strength on the MRC score, the rash-built overall disability score, which is a functional probability scale, uh, is an extremely useful score in CIDP. Uh, and again, we, we think generally of four points on that score as, a, as the MCID that we'd like to see the patient uh, move past. But uh, uh, in uh, vasculitis, for instance, what you're initially wanting to see, perhaps uh, not seeing an immediate change, although you'd very, like, very much like that to occur, uh, you would want to see some indicator of suppression of disease activity, that is, the patient stopping getting worse, uh, perhaps other uh, systemic biomarkers uh, reducing or going back towards normal, the ESR and CRP um, becoming suppressed, for instance, uh, and initially, that might be your uh, disease activity marker that you uh, want to follow, uh, only later employing uh, the neurological biomarkers. In, in many of the neurological diseases, there are well-tested uh, uh, and validated biomarkers that are applicable to each individual disease. And we've highlighted those in Table 5. Uh, you can select from those what's applicable to the patient and utilise them as necessary. Ashton, coming back again to, to safety and this time sort of monitoring safety, you've split your safety monitoring into steroid and non-steroid and, and you've outlined really clearly the challenges and the side effects with steroids, which many listeners will already be very familiar with. I was interested in your advice for sick days for patients taking steroid and non-steroid and the difference with COVID-19. Could you just for listeners highlight what your advice is for those taking steroids on sick days? So if we go to table seven, it's um, very clear. I think one of the most important things is to let the patient know at the beginning that um, it's something a, a little bit about the mechanism of steroids and the fact that because we are giving them exogenous steroids, their normal ability to produce an extra steroid response through their adrenal gland is suppressed whenever they need that extra. And that's another important um, piece of advice to give to a patient because 
we don't want them to be suddenly stopping the steroids. Um, so this is all part of the, the, the counselling beforehand and the informed consent. So if you're feeling unwell and do develop the steroid side effects um, on the higher doses, you need to be aware and understand what those are and be prepared for them so that you don't stop your steroids very, very suddenly and, and cause a potential adrenal crisis. So first of all, patient information is very helpful. You can also um, give a patient a, a steroid card to put in their wallet, although people don't really carry wallets about so much anymore. So I'm not. I'm, I'm sure those steroid cards will, uh, will evolve out of general practice. But in table seven, we do try to just summarise as effectively as possible the, the advice, the general advice from endocrinology about sick days. So if patients are unwell or have a fever and they are on a relatively low dose of prednisolone, so something along the lines of a physiological dose between three and 10 milligrams per day, then they should increase their dose to five milligrams twice a day. And in COVID-19, um, there is very recent evidence and again, a reflection of how these pieces of advice change over time. And we all have a responsibility to keep it up to date. That is adjusted to 10 milligrams twice a day. For those in slightly higher doses of steroids, for example, 10 milligrams or more per day, you should split the dose up um, into twice per day. And that's the same if it's a COVID-19 induced fever. Um, and then there are different adjustments for hydrocortisone or other steroid preparations. All of this advice is also available online. There is a wide variety of um, steroid sick day um, pieces of advice. And very often your own trust or uh, your local endocrinology department will have a hospital um, approved guideline. So these may change ever so slightly from one hospital to the other. Thank you. That's fantastic. And focusing a little more perhaps on the steroids bearing agents, again, two wonderful tables, eight and nine, which outline your suggested monitoring for these agents and, and actionable events for those. I was interested in how you decided on those, where, where your evidence comes from or whether that's experience. And on a more practical note, how you make sure that that happens and how you've set that up. Most of this advice is borrowed from the rheumatology literature. Rheumatologists are very good at writing very detailed, up-to-date guidelines on these medications, well, basically because they use them across the board for pretty much all of their patients. So um, they have a vast amount of long-term data. So these are the current consensus um, guidelines from, uh, you know, borrowed from other specialties. Now, how we manage to... Um, keep on top of this uh, quite detailed follow-up is through um, a, an excellent clinical nurse specialist. So um, I think different hospitals, um, patient people with different numbers of patients on these drugs, um, and it, sort of, it, it really requires a, a certain critical mass to have the appropriate level of support to um, ensure that all of these things are put in place. But the way we work is that we have a clinical nurse specialist who covers our immunoglobulin and immunosuppression service. What is very helpful is that she is available Monday to Friday, 9 to 5 via email and telephone for patients when they have concerns or queries. And she is someone who is, um, her contact details are provided on the patient information booklets. So that in itself is a very significant safety net that we are very lucky to have in our department. And then according to the timing of the required 
follow-up bloods, we usually our clinical nurse specialist will make a shared care agreement with the patient's GP so that the, they can have their safety monitoring bloods performed locally to them. And then the GP feeds in the blood results and our clinical nurse specialist has a telephone clinic set up to oversee the monitoring. We tend to have weekly meetings with our clinical nurse specialist to oversee all of our patients on um, immunosuppression and she will will discuss with us if she's concerned about anyone who um, has a particularly um, significant actionable event based on the monitoring. So I think that, that not every department will have the luxury of a dedicated clinical nurse specialist, but certainly that's how we are able to manage the a subspecialist inflammatory um, neuromuscular or immune um, suppression and neuromuscular service very safely. Yeah, thank you. If, it, if it's a resource that's available, it's really wonderfully helpful. Thank you all so much for your time, for your expertise, for your fantastically helpful practical paper guiding us through how we approach these conditions and most importantly how we keep ourselves and our patients safe when we're prescribing them. It's been a a real pleasure, it's been extremely educational for me uh, to talk with you all and I know that our listeners will find this a really applicable and practical podcast, especially when combined with the paper and its, its tables for reference but also again just to highlight there's a real wealth of supplementary material that's available with that and and as um, Ashley and Michael and Mike have all alluded to some extra online resources remember that the article is free to download there's a link within the podcast description so that the listeners can access that paper I hope everyone's listening has enjoyed that as much as I have. Please leave us a review if you think there are ways of improving this or or any of our Practical Neurology podcasts. And if you hadn't had a chance to listen to the others this month, I'd really recommend it. They're all available on, on Spotify, on Apple or on Podbean. Thank you all very much for listening. Thank you once again to our sensational guests and we'll see you next time.